0: If you want to turn to me, or you can read it up on the screen here, we're going to be reading out of Luke 7, 36 to 50. Um, This passage is uh, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to a dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, let her many sins that have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has little forgiveness, He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, I
1: always feel like I have to sometimes apologize before I'm about to say what I'm about to say. Many of you who have been at TCC for the last four years have probably heard uh, enough stories about me or my family. Um, Others of you are fairly new, and you really don't know much about me or my family at all. And so to those who already know this bit of information, I ask for your forgiveness. For those of you who this may be new, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, how I met Tina. Um, Tina is from Cleveland, Ohio and in 1993 i was serving as a youth pastor in calgary and uh, i took a group of high school students to a conference in chicago tina came with her youth group from chicago and our eyes met across a crowded cafeteria and so that was like the very uh, the second day of the conference all day all week long we kind of ran into each other and we talked and we talked some more and kind of shared the little bit of information. And I think it was about the third night, we stayed up till about two or three in the morning and just talked and uh, just kind of shared our lives a little bit. You know, she came from a family of five and I was from a family of five, all the little details that you might just kind of get to know about somebody. So I returned to Calgary, she returns to Cleveland, and we carried on this long-distance relationship. And fairly early on, I was pretty smitten and uh, definitely she was with me. Um... And uh, I can say all these things because she's in children's ministry today, so please don't tell her anything. Um, And uh, so we had this long-distance relationship. Uh, Over the course of the next 13 months or so, we saw each other in person for about 30 days. The rest of the time was spent on the phone... Sending faxes back and forth. That's how ancient we are and uh, No, we didn't even have email at the time. No social networking none of that kind of stuff It was just letter writing cards faxes phone calls, and then we would get a visit every so often Well, it didn't take me very long to know that this was somebody that God had brought into my life and uh, And so we had met in July the following February We got engaged and then we were gonna get married in September in Cleveland so I went down a week early with my best friend and best man and his wife, and kind of had that week together where we were just doing the final wedding preparations, and then my family all flew in, and we had to, you know rides from the airport, and you're doing all these things. And, um, and I remember Tina saying to me later on, she goes, you know that week before our wedding, you were acting strange. And it was, I remember thinking back on, this is weird. We've only spent 30 days together. And we're getting married. Do I really know her? Or do I just know about her? Do I just know some of the details of her life? But do I really know her character and her, and her personality? Well, <clears throat> the day came. And uh, actually, I got a picture of this. And you'll see this here. Like, look at that young, smashing couple, eh? Look at that. Young. Really young. Young looking, I'm much grayer now already. Um, this was the before. I mean, this was the after wedding. So we're we're after the we're we're married. We're this is it. We're we're done. But if you just go to the next picture, this was me about five minutes before the service, behind the platform with my best man going, "Oh Lord, help me! What am I doing?" It was a scary time. I mean, did I really know what I was getting into? And do I really know her? And in just a few minutes, there was no going back because this was going to be a lifelong commitment. And the reality is I knew enough about Tina to make this commitment and then to start on a journey of getting to know her and she getting to know me intimately. Well, we go on our honeymoon and uh, we went on a a cruise and we got to different islands every day. And one day we're on an island And I pointed out, we were just near some people, and I said to her, I said, oh, those people are German over there. I can understand what they're speaking. And she just thought, well, Norb comes from a German family, so he would, of course, know what German sounds like. A little bit later, a storm comes in, and we all gather under the shelter, and um, I stand next to this German guy, European, in a Speedo, and uh, (laughs) it was awkward, but I started speaking German to him. And Tina did not know that I spoke German. Something that basic. And it freaked her out. She's like, how could I not know that? You would think I would have known that. I would have put it together. I, I, I would have thought I would have heard him speak to his parents. She actually, I think, met my parents once. We, she came to Calgary. We drove to Edmonton. And so she's like, what else don't I know about him? And, uh, and so we were both kind of into this. Now, 18 years later, we certainly know each other more intimately, but we are still continuing to grow in intimacy. And the fact is that in any relationship, we can choose intimacy, to go deeper, to make ourselves known and to be known. And this is especially true when we become a follower of Jesus, In fact, intimacy is no longer an option, I believe. We must choose intimacy. Let me explain. In the passage that Jared read for us this morning, we find two people on two paths. And so in Luke chapter 7, we read about these two people who encounter Jesus on very different paths. Jesus invited to eat at Simon the Pharisee's house. Simon doesn't give Jesus a kiss when he walks in, even though that would have been the custom. Typically, the custom would have been to, to wash the feet of your guest, or at the very least, have a servant do it for you. Jesus' feet went unwashed. Oftentimes, when you had a guest into your home, especially a distinguished guest, you would give them some, at least some inexpensive olive oil to anoint their head. That was the custom. But Jesus entering Simon's home, none of this happened for him. And so Jesus is eating in the home of this pretender, and in the middle of their meal, an uninvited guest appears. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 7 that that she's a known sinner, that she was a woman with a bad reputation. And she walks into this house and goes and stands behind Jesus. Now, Jesus would have been reclining on the floor, probably propped up by a a pillow under under his side, under his arm, with his feet kind of sticking out behind him. And there stood this sinful woman, and she begins to weep, and she's crying, and she falls at the feet of Jesus, and the tears are now streaming down her cheeks and dripping off her cheeks and onto the, the dirty, muddy feet of Jesus, the feet that should have been washed by the Pharisee. If you have children who played outside and bare feet and run through the yard and you know what it's like. Their feet get that little fine layer of dust on there and then they just start to get little driplets of water. Sometimes maybe they're running through the sprinkler and it's all just running down. You can, image, you can picture that. And as this is going on, the woman sees that Jesus' feet are not washed and she now sees how her tears are making some of the dirt run off his feet. And so she undoes her hair. And I, I don't think she planned this. She, she would have assumed his feet would be clean, but now she discovered that they were dirty and her tears, with her tears she starts to wash his feet and with her hair she starts to dry and wipe his feet. And then we might look at it and think, wow, she's really going overboard when she begins to, to kiss them. But in this instant she was overcome with her love and her worship for Jesus, that it had to come out in this extravagant way. She takes out the jar of perfume that she had and she pours it on his feet. So I want you just to freeze that moment, that image, that scene of the two different Past, the two different people. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But keep this story in mind while we talk a little bit more about intimacy. Let me first give you a picture of intimacy. In my relationship with Tina, in fact, maybe in most relationships, I'm not always the most sensitive person. I'll say things that I wish I hadn't said, I'll blurt things out that I wish I hadn't said. And, um, and and this is sort of an aside. I'll tell you this now, and it'll make sense later. But I also like to sleep. <laughs> and I'm a very sound sleeper. I can fall asleep just about anywhere and um, sleep through just about anything. And so the night that Lucas was born, I was at a meeting at the church, and Tina called and told me that she was having contractions. So I said, well, could you just hang on a little while? I'm, I'm busy. I didn't say that. I'm not that bad. <laughs> Kidding. We went home and we drove the 45 minutes into Ottawa and, you know, she was admitted into, auto, into the hospital and, and it was around 11, 12 o'clock at night and she had gotten her epidural and I kind of thought everything was going to be okay for a while. And uh, I kind of thought that, you know, she's comfortable now. She's just going to kind of settle for the night and we'll pick it up in the morning. And so I said to her, unfortunately, um. Do you mind if I get some sleep? This could be a long night. Tina's never let me forget that. It comes up often in our conversations. Now, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but when a baby is born, it cries a lot. It has no other way to communicate, no other way to say what it wants or needs. When our children were babies and they were crying, I never really knew what was wrong. I could never really figure it out but Tina had this ability to to know if they were crying and know if they were crying because they were hungry or had a dirty diaper or they were tired or just needed a good burp. And I'm sure in those early months of being parents, Tina would sleep kind of with one eye open (laughs) and the slightest peep and she would just shoot out of bed and peek into the crib and almost by the tone of the cry would know if Lucas or Anna needed a bottle or needed a diaper change or just needed some calming assurance or a couple of pats on the back. Now, I, of course, was completely oblivious to this and never actually knew that this happened until I heard about it in the morning. The fact is, Tina had this intimate, intuitive connection with both of our children. In fact, I think it's safe to say that there's almost no relationship more intimate than a mother and her baby. Because a mother is able to know and understand her child's wants and needs in a way that no one else can. You've probably been in a room before with friends or family and a baby starts to get fussy. And, and all of a sudden, everyone's passing this shrieking baby around, hoping that somebody's going to be able to calm it down. And even other mothers, they think, well, this works with my child and I'm going to try this and it doesn't work. And it's not until the mom walks into the room. And it's almost by just the tone of her voice or the sound of her voice that the baby can often begin to settle. There's this intimate relationship where the mother knows the child and the child knows the mother. And really that's what intimacy is. Knowing and being known completely. And in a picture, this is intimacy. And until you've witnessed that kind of relationship where you know and are, are known completely, you won't know what intimacy is. I could read you the definition, explain where the word comes from and how the word is used, but you wouldn't really know what intimacy is. You would just know about intimacy. It really is something you need to discover over time. Something to experience. And fortunately for us, we worship and serve a God who knows us. And desires to be known by us. So the first thing I want you to know this morning is this, that God knows us intimately. He knows us intimately. You and I are known intimately by God. And probably the best biblical word for intimacy is this simple English word, know. It's First used in the context of relationships in Genesis 4, chapter 1. Genesis 4, 1 simply says this, Now Adam knew Eve his wife. That's from the English Standard Version. And the Hebrew word for know here is the word yada. The the definition for yada is to know and to be known completely. But the NIV, if you're using the New new International Version, translates the word a little bit differently because it starts to put it in the context of what's happening. Genesis 4.1 in the NIV, it's easier to say than the whole word. Adam lay with his wife Eve. And they weren't just laying down for a nap, if you catch my drift. The message translation isn't overly helpful here either when it says Adam slept with Eve, his wife. I mean, they may have gone to bed, but they didn't go to sleep, if you know what I mean. Now, trust the New Living Translation to come right out and say it. Now, Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve. And how do we know that it is the word, that that's what the word know means in this context? Because in almost every translation, that phrase is followed by another phrase, and she conceived, or she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So now you get the picture. This knowing wasn't just a nap or some snuggling between Adam and Eve. You see, That is the context for yada. So let's not kind of giggle and blush and rush past this. It's not just kind of a yada, yada, yada moment, okay? This is a yada moment between a husband and wife. It's it's this intimate connection on every level to know and to be known. And really, I know it's in a kind of a weird sort of way, But it's a beautiful picture. Because there's something to be said for the sacredness of marital intimacy that when we first read about sex, it's about intimacy, not about physical pleasure. Os Guinness writes, The biblical view of sexual intercourse is that it is not only procreative, but expressive. Listen to this. It is the ultimate expression of intimacy, of complete an unconditional unveiling of which two human beings are capable. You see, there are other Hebrew words that could have been used, words used later in the scripture referring to the physical act or even procreation. But here it is, this intimate connecting. One Hebrew scholar calls it a mingling of the souls. Now, it's hard to understand this until you see the difference, maybe, between a a dating or newly married couple and a couple who've been together for a very, very long time. Next time you're at a restaurant, not today after the service, stay for brunch, but this week when you're out and about, look around the restaurant and see if you can't identify these two types of couple. At one table, there's that young couple. Maybe they're just dating or maybe recently married. And then at another couple, there's an, or another table. There's another couple. Maybe they've been married like fifty plus years. You, you've seen the picture, right? The newlyweds, newlyweds. They, you know, they might be even sitting on the same side of the table, in a booth, tucked away somewhere, so they can have some privacy, and they almost can't keep their hands off each other. Snuggled up close, talking nonstop, joking, laughing, interrupting one another. All the while, their food is getting cold, and they could care less. They just keep talking, talk, talk, talking. And then in the other corner of the restaurant, there's that elderly couple. They, they probably have spent more than half their lives together. My mom and dad were married for three quarters of their lives. It's really incredible when you think about it. But this elderly couple in the restaurant, they don't say a word. Nothing. They can just sit there in silence. I, I know, I know, there's, there's silence and then there's silence. But this isn't the silent treatment. No, it's almost as if they're communicating in the silence. Silence. They're connecting in this silence. For them, just being together is enough space for connection. They're able to communicate without saying anything. And they're able to connect because they share this intimate bond. Now, you may not think that the couple was actually able to talk to each other without speaking, but you understand the connection. You understand what it means for a woman and a man to have intimacy, to yada each other. And if you trace the use of yada through the Old Testament, you'll find this word used over and over again. And here's maybe the weird part. It's the same word that's used to describe God's relationship with us. Over and over, yada is the word that's used to describe how God knows you and how he wants to be known by you. It's strange, I admit. But this same word, this same connection used to describe a man and a wife is used to describe how God wants to know you. If you're married, think of the day-in, day-out connection you have with your spouse how deeply you know her or him, how intimately she or he knows you, that you can sit in silence and still communicate. Tina typically gets up before me. She'll get up around 6.30, make some coffee, sits down on the couch to have some quiet time with God. I come down around seven. I grab my coffee, I grab my iPad where I do my Bible reading from, and I go and sit in the chair across from her in our, in our great room. And I'll start to read, but I'll look up. And, and I start to struggle because I want to interrupt her. I want to talk to her. I want to spend more time getting to know her. I want to know her plans maybe for the day, and I want to know her joys or her fears. And so more often than not, I usually interrupt her, much to her frustration. Because I think she wants to know me too, but, but she really wants to know God. I should probably learn from her. But learning that God knows me intimately taught me something about my relationship with Jesus. It's not a weekend fling. It's not a casual encounter. It is yada. It's a deep knowing. It is a deep relational connection. It's intimacy. And David uses this word yada about six times to describe how God knows us in Psalm 139. He writes this, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know, you yada when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You even know What I am going to say before I say it, Lord. You know, you know, you know. And David speaks to God in this intimate way. It says, God, you know how I feel. You know how I hurt. You know what I'm thinking. You know about my disappointments. God knows everything about me. And about you. He knows us intimately. He knows what we do and where we go. He knows us, if you will, inside and out. He knows our thoughts. He even knows what we are going to say in the future. He could finish our sentences. But there's another piece to this. Not only does God know us. God wants us to know Him intimately. You see, while it's amazing that God knows us that deeply and intimately, it's even more amazing to me that God invites us to know Him. Excuse me. <laughs> God desires for his soul to mingle with ours. For some crazy reason, the creator of heaven and earth has offered an invitation to you and to me. And when the psalmist writes in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. He's using the same word again. Yada. God wants to be known intimately by us. And here's the thing. I always read this verse and I always saw this kind of be still part as, you know, just sit down and be quiet and be reflective. Kind of don't move, just rest in His presence. But that's not actually the meaning of the word. It means to abandon, to become helpless, to let go, to surrender to lay down your arms. God has opened his heart and said, listen, I want you to know me more closely and intimately than you know anyone else. I want you to know my heart, to connect with me on a level that only can be reached through the most vulnerable intimacy. I want our souls to come together for both of us to know the other deeply and completely. But to do that you are going to have to surrender yourself to die to yourself. Doesn't that sound familiar? If you've been here the past two weeks, ever since we started this Not A Fan series, that's been kind of the theme verse for us, Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross And follow me the denying of ourselves it's really quite an invitation and it's very similar to just be still surrender let go and know that I am God that's an invitation to intimacy and many of us have a hard time knowing how to deal with intimacy We can do pretty well at avoiding it, but when it's right in our faces, some of us kind of lose it. We're a little bit uncomfortable with it. And that's not surprising because one of the most common responses to intimacy is fear. You can understand that, right? Because honestly, intimacy can be scary because it inevitably allows or involves allowing another person to know you deeply, allowing yourself to become very vulnerable. And many people fear intimacy with others and ultimately with God because they know that at times vulnerability and pain go hand in hand. So many people have experienced a betrayal or a a crushing blow from someone close to them. They, They opened up, they shared a part of their lives that no one else knew. They made themselves vulnerable and then someone let them down. They were burned and disappointed. But here's the thing. There can be no intimacy without vulnerability. When we make ourselves vulnerable to God, we know he's going to find some things in our lives that we're not proud of. Think of that sinful woman that I described at the beginning in Luke chapter 7. A woman with a bad reputation. She knew that she had sin in her life, that it would have made her unworthy to touch the Messiah. And because we've all fallen short, we know that God's going to look into our lives and find things that He doesn't condone. So it kind of makes sense that Many people might be afraid of that kind of vulnerability. But followers of Jesus Christ know that there is so much to be gained from intimacy with God. Because then we know that he's there for us through any pain we endure, any embarrassment we have to face, any challenge that is put before us. That comfort, knowing that the God of angels' armies is always by my side. That can only come through intimacy. To know without a shadow of a doubt that God has your back. And so, since God knows us intimately, and God wants us to know Him intimately we're ultimately faced with a choice. We must choose intimacy. We have often failed to embrace intimacy with Jesus because we've created a system, I think, in the church, and I grew up in in this system, if I can call it that, that was focused around learning. Not unlike Simon and the other Pharisees, They knew everything there was to know. And our default setting is almost always knowledge and not intimacy. We we tend to know a lot about Jesus instead of truly knowing Jesus. I mean, just think about it for a moment. We love having Bible studies, many of which include having some kind of workbook that includes curriculum for working through a particular book of the Bible. Sermons are typically instructive. Pastor Ken and I, we like to teach the Bible. We like to study the Word of God, and we like to share it with you. But do we know Him? Maybe we grew up going to Sunday school, and we memorized verses in the books of the Bible, I mean, I wonder, can I just do a show? How many of you have ever competed in a sword drill? How many of you have no clue what a sword drill is? Just a few of you. Okay, good. Here's the instructive part again. Okay, your Sunday school teacher, when they're looking to kill time at the end of the class because the pastor was going too long, said, okay, take out your Bibles. And you'd say, okay, the first one who could find... Leviticus 1822 and everybody would frantically look because they knew that it was Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers and you would bounce all over the Bible and Oftentimes we would never really know the verse or even spend time knowing The God who was being described in those verses But boy we found great pride in beating everyone else to that verse Now, please don't get me wrong. Studying and learning from God's Word is invaluable. In fact, one of the ways that we get to know God is by studying His Word and understanding His character and what He was like as we read in the Bible and spend time in the Word. Jesus Himself referenced and read and Quoted all kinds of passages from the Old Testament. I think there's more than enough proof that he had studied God's Word with great care and diligence. However, here's where we have to be careful. We can't expect knowledge to replace intimacy, even though we often try to. And I think we try to substitute knowledge for intimacy because knowledge is so much easier. It's easy for us to say, well, I know about Jesus and to know facts and details. But he wants us to know him. See, and that's where we find Simon the Pharisee. He knew a lot about Jesus and his teachings, and he wanted to learn more. I think maybe that's why he invited him in the home, just to spend time with Jesus, to know more about him. He even calls him teacher at one point, emphasizing that, that he's most interested in learning for Jesus, not truly opening up to Jesus and making himself vulnerable. And Simon sees all that this woman does for Jesus and her embarrassing actions. And the Bible tells us in Luke 7, verse 39, that when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And he just says this to himself. But Jesus, who knows us intimately, who knows our thoughts, who knows what we're about to say before we even say it. He knew Simon's thoughts. And so he answered him, look, Simon, I came into your house. You did not give me a kiss, not even on my hand. And this woman, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You gave me nothing to wash my feet with, and she is washing my feet with her tears. You gave me no olive oil for my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. And people can just see this brokenness of this woman. And then Jesus turns to this woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Simon brought Jesus to the meal But all he really wanted was more knowledge. He wanted to keep things shallow, and he defined his relationship by not washing Jesus' feet, not caring enough to kiss for him, not being willing to anoint his head. But this woman was willing to open up to Jesus. She made herself vulnerable, being totally willing to open up and let Jesus know her. Two people, two paths. The path of knowledge, path of intimacy. Which path are we on? For Simon, it was knowledge, because knowledge is safe, and there's no need for vulnerability and no need for intimacy. But the woman with the bad reputation, she opened up her life. She was willing to be vulnerable, and she found intimacy. And so it's up to you and to me. Will we choose intimacy? Will you let Jesus know you? Will you embrace the close and intimate relationship that he wants to have with you? Not to keep him at an arm's length, not to keep him at a safe distance, but as Brad prayed this morning before the service, 100% in, 100% of the time. Because with this kind of intimate relationship, is when we truly know the depth of the forgiveness. When we understand what Jesus has done for us. And today, Jesus invites anyone to follow him. It's an open invitation to know and to be known by the one who gave his life for us who took up his cross for us. And I pray this morning that even as we gather around this table, that when we hold the bread and the cup in our hands, and we come before God and we make ourselves vulnerable, and maybe we even admit that says, I've done this many times before. But maybe I just did it out of routine. And repetition because that's what I've always done since I was this old but maybe you have the courage today to say lord I want you to know me and I want to know you and what is it in my life that you need to deal with what is it that I need to acknowledge what is it that I need to do what is it that I need to change What part of my character needs refining? And my hope and prayer is that even this morning, in the quietness of these moments, that God would speak to you and to me and to begin to do a work that we could say, you know, I don't remember much about that sermon on March 3rd, 2013, but I do know that God met me around the communion table as I held those elements And he began to change my life.